This is a Vantage House production. Hi folks, welcome back. I'm your host, Chalen. On behalf of myself and the team, I want to thank you for being a part of our global listenership. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating wherever you found us. It helps us reach more people, and this is a very special show that we hope builds momentum for a very important cause. Today is February 16th, and if it's Friday, then this is the Dell. On February 17th, 2022, WNBA star Brittany Griner was arrested at Moscow's largest international airport with a vape cartridge containing less than one gram of hash oil. She was quickly convicted of drug smuggling and sentenced to nine years in prison. The standard sentence in Russia for this crime is 15 days. Her story sparked a media firestorm. The Texas native Brittany Griner. After 124 days, she was released in exchange for a Russian arms dealer. His name is Victor Boot, and he's known as the Merchant of Death. But she isn't the only American civilian held hostage by Russia. And today we're speaking with the sister of Mark Fogel, a teacher who has been held in a Russian labor camp for two years. But first, some history. Around the world, states have been using hostage-taking to advance their foreign policy objectives for centuries. In ancient China, taking hostages was standard operating procedure in diplomacy and was considered an act of good faith to ensure continued peace and mutual trust between two vassal states. Good faith and hostage-taking are not terms we associate in the modern era, but the shift is more modern than you might think. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. The United States of America dropped the first nuclear bomb on Japan ending World War II. In changing wars, humankind had known it since the beginning of humankind. In the wake of the atrocities committed by Germany, the Soviet Union, Japan, Italy, the United States of America, Great Britain, and France, the Geneva Convention of 1949 outlined rules of engagement in war that included the prohibition of hostage-taking in war times. But in the Cold War that followed under the shadow of mutually assured destruction, states relied on underhanded tactics to achieve their goals. This was the era of nuclear threat, ideological warfare, proxy wars, spies, propaganda, quote, re-education camps, and bad faith hostage taking. A hostage is anyone seized and held by one party with conditions of their release from another party. Sometimes a hostage situation is cut and dry, like a bank robber telling the bank teller until they open the vault. 
but oftentimes the conditions of release are not stated outright, but are aligned to the general advancement of the hostage takers. In 1961, officials in Soviet-controlled East Germany arrested American graduate student Frederick Pryor for espionage. Pryor was traveling from West to East Germany to deliver a copy of his economics dissertation to a professor only a few days after the Berlin Wall finished construction. He was detained without formal charges or trial. After six months of detainment, East German officials offered him in exchange for convicted KGB spy Rudolf Abel as a way to prevent the dissemination of Soviet secrets. In November of 1979, a group of Iranian students stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran and took 52 diplomats and U.S. citizens hostage. They stormed the embassy, fought the Marine Guards for three hours. The students want the deposed Shah returned to Iran for trial. After several failed rescue attempts, the United States negotiated a settlement with the Iranian government, known as the Algiers Accords, and the hostages were released in January of 1981. The settlement ensured that the United States would not intervene in Iran's domestic politics anymore and would pay Iran's debts. The International Convention Against the Taking of Hostages was adopted on the 17th of December in 1979 by the UN General Assembly. The United States was one of its original signatories, and the convention entered into force in 1983. The Russian Federation signed onto the treaty in 1987. Iran signed on in 2006. A state holding a hostage doesn't usually call that person a hostage. They've accused them of a crime and call them a prisoner, a drug smuggler, a spy, a terrorist. The government and media are deliberate in their language in order to advance the war strategy. In the wake of 9-11, the United States opened Guantanamo Bay. Almost 800 men and boys, all Muslim, have been detained there without trial in the past 22 years. Only 12 have ever been convicted of a crime. Were they terrorists in prison during a war or kidnapped? We dropped flyers over um, the tribal areas and, and the border areas uh, between Pakistan and Afghanistan, uh, saying, if you give us members of Al-Qaeda, we will pay you anywhere from, I think it was up to $5,000. President Musharraf of Pakistan is on the record as gloating about how much money the Pakistani government made from turning over people to the United States, whom they just labeled as terrorists. Pretty much anybody who was an Arab in Afghanistan um, after 9-11 was worth 20 years' salary um, to hungry villagers, to corrupt warlords, uh, to corrupt Pakistani policemen manning the border. And so with the bounties ranging from $3,000 to $25,000, the United States begins piling up these men really quickly, who are held without charge and without proof. Many were picked up for just being at the wrong place at the wrong time, or even wearing the wrong kind of watch. One of our counsel likes to say that being foreign in Afghanistan after 9-11 was like driving while black. One example of this was Pradhan's client, Imad Hassan, a Yemeni student in Pakistan who, when he was sold, was asked by U.S. military officials if he knew al-Qaeda, to which he responded yes. And they said, okay, all right, well, you're coming with us. And he was sent to uh, one of the camps where he was just brutally tortured. Um, he was stripped naked, he was beaten, he was subjected to freezing temperatures. And during this time, he was interrogated again, and he was asked, do you know al-Qaeda? And he at this point realized that perhaps there was some mix-up. And it turns out that the Al-Qaeda Hassan knew was a small village in Yemen. Hassan, told that he would be let go, would remain in Guantanamo until 2015, 
13 years after he was sold to the U.S. military. Human rights organizations Reprieve asserts that 86% of prisoners at Guantanamo Bay were captured in this way. Most, like Imad Hassan, were either entirely unrelated to Al-Qaeda and the attack on 9-11, or forced conscripts, low-level cooks, and drivers. Numerous men were found to be victims of mistaken identity. Some 700 men have since been repatriated around the world or traded in prisoner swaps, while 30 men are still detained, most of whom without charges or a fair trial. We don't call these innocent people hostages in our own media, but we help them to advance our war on terror agenda. We traded some of them in prisoner swaps and sent a message to the Muslim world that no one is safe. In 2018, Kylie Moore Gilbert, an Australian researcher and lecturer specializing in Middle Eastern politics, was arrested while attending a conference in Iran. She was tried and convicted of espionage and sentenced to 10 years in prison. The Austrian government eventually negotiated her release in exchange for Iranian citizens held in Thailand for their suspected involvement in the 2012 Bangkok bombings. And on October 7th, 2023, Hamas militants invaded southern Israel from Gaza and brutally captured 240 hostages, even babies. More than 130 are still being held in the Palestinian enclave under horrific conditions and constant bombardment. After watching her husband's murder, 72-year-old grandmother Adina Moshe spent 49 days confined underground in Gaza. She was a part of the first prisoner exchange on November 24th. When it came time to negotiate a trade during the short-lived humanitarian pause, Israel identified 300 Palestinian women and minors for potential release. Nearly 80% of those earmarked for prisoner swaps were never charged with a crime by Israel. Like in Guantanamo, we don't formally call these Palestinians hostages in Western media, but they've been held without charges or trial and used as bargaining chips by the Israeli government. Imprisoning enemy combatants and suspected terrorists is an undeniable part of war. But it remains true that too many innocent Israelis and Palestinians, uncharged Guantanamo detainees, and diplomatic families in Iran have been caught up in a crazy frenzy. And the individuals like Moore Gilbert, Frederick Pryor, Brittany Griner, and others who are victims of Cold War era hostage quote diplomacy suffer untold trauma as a result of political disputes that they had little or no involvement in and no control over. While xenophobic and nefarious governments use bogus criminal charges to conceal their hostage treaty violations, deny people their human rights, and advance their interests. On October 21st, 2021, Mark Vogel was arrested at Moscow's largest international airport with less than an ounce of medical marijuana. He was convicted of large-scale, large-scale drug smuggling and sentenced to 14 years in prison. The standard sentence for this crime is 15 days. Sound familiar? Mark Vogel was a teacher at the Anglo-American School of Moscow. Only a few months prior to his arrest, he would have enjoyed diplomatic immunity. However, in the lead up to the invasion of Ukraine and increasing pressure on the Western diplomatic community in Moscow, the Anglo-American school was no longer affiliated with the embassy and his diplomatic passport was revoked. His arrest served as a message and a warning to all foreign expatriates that remained in Russia and the invasion of Ukraine began six months later. But his arrest and continued detainment is most shocking to the people who know him personally a member of our team here at the Delve was a student in Moscow. She says, 
Mark is an unflinchingly positive person who radiates warmth and kindness to everyone he meets. He is a deeply passionate history teacher and an even more compassionate softball coach. He loves to walk around barefoot to absorb the negative eons, and he is a devout supporter of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Go Bucks! Mark also suffers from chronic back pain that requires frequent medical intervention. Despite the similarities between his case and that of Brittany Griner, Mark has not been declared unlawfully detained by the State Department and has been held for more than two years. News of his case was not publicized in the U.S. media until nearly a year after his arrest. Since then, the coverage has been shockingly small. The former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael McFaul, said in a statement to Politico, It's a bit mysterious to me why we aren't talking about three Americans now, and thankfully two Americans instead of just one. He's not just some random guy that got arrested. He was a part of our community. He taught our kids, the kids of U.S. government officials, and he taught our military kids. Mark Vogel was nearing retirement when he was arrested. His age and his health concerns are not conducive to the conditions of a Russian labor camp. His family and friends are concerned that his 14-year sentence is effectively equivalent to a death sentence. Mark has no political influence and no nefarious intentions. His life is being weaponized by global politics. He may be used to exchange for another prisoner held by the West or he may be used as leverage to manipulate the U.S. response to the war in Ukraine. Regardless, the lack of response by the United States sets a dangerous precedent. It signifies that American citizens working and traveling abroad not only do not have the protection of their government, but may be explicitly targeted for use as bargaining chips. It is proof positive that states have no regard for the lives of innocent civilians and will stoop to any level to achieve their strategic objectives. Today, I am honored to be joined by Mark's sister, Anne Fogel, to discuss his case, her experience with the U.S. State Department, and the Russian legal system. Our hope is that this discussion might aid in helping him be declared unlawfully detained. Please share this story far and wide. Hi, Anne. Thank you so much for taking some time to speak to us on the Delve here today. This is a really interesting, fascinating, and important discussion we're about to have. And I'm sure probably no more important and fascinating and deep for you. Can you tell us a little bit about your brother? Well, he's a pretty charismatic individual. He's a very engaged person, I would say that, in life. He's just very engaged in life. He's one of the most joyful people that I know. We've been close my whole life. One of the things that he, he's just made some really incredible decisions in his life as well. Going into teaching for him was a, a master stroke. He was able to continue to study history, which he loves, and he was able to share that. And he was able to incorporate family history and world politics and how those things meld. And he was able to kind of bring it to his students. And his students, because they're... Um, He's been teaching in international schools his career, or the majority of his career. Uh, he's been able to use the perspective of his students, and it has really made a massive impact on many, many, many lives. One of his students is doing a documentary film right now about him. He's graduating from Chapman University, and 
They're headed to London at the end of this month to interview about 15 of his students together. Yeah, so I'm excited. I'm excited to hear how that goes. Yeah, of course. Can you walk us through the circumstances leading up to his arrest? Sure. I'll have to take that back a little bit further than you might want. Sure, let's do it. It probably goes back to peewee football, Mm. age 12, Western Pennsylvania, (laughs) and a bad hit after the play was over, which my father was pretty upset about. He hurt his back when he was really young, Mm. and it didn't improve with age. And so Mark has had pretty significant back issues the majority of his life. Mm. And through many, many surgeries on his back, on his hip, on his shoulder, knees, everywhere, he was continually prescribed opiates, which he just had a serious aversion to, which I'm incredibly thankful for. Mm. He did find that marijuana helped him and at the odds of Uh, with the naysaying that went on against marijuana as a medical application, um, he just always refuted it. So that was his main mode of relieving his back pain. Mm. And when Pennsylvania legalized it, it was a really good day for him. And he thought, okay, I have a, a doctor's prescription. I've got my card. I've got X, Y, and Z. And they proceeded for their 10th and final year in Moscow at the Anglo-American School. At that time, the airport, Sheremetyevo, was under construction. And they walked into a, an airport that was completely different from the one that they had walked out of three months prior to that. Because they spent summers and uh, holidays in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So... When he came through, he did not go through the correct line. He did not declare medical marijuana a prescription, and he was busted. Mm. Then from there, it was uh, almost an entire year of detention, shuffling between different CISOs, C-I-Z-Z-O, which is their pre-trial detention centers, okay, and then trial in June of... 2022, followed by a 14-year prison sentence for 14 grams of medical marijuana. So a year for each gram. Yeah. And uh, so that's, he's in a place called Rybinsk now. It's uh, pretty close to the Arctic Circle Mm. in very cold conditions. That's true. And he's not, uh, he's, he's 62 years old with a long history of medical issues. Yeah. So it's not it's not a good fit. Yeah. Can you walk me through how you heard about his detention? I mean, this we're talking about one of the most alarming moments of your life. Right. How how did this so unfold? My my sister-in-law and my brother went up they were both teaching in in Moscow, so they went together. I should also add that up until the final year up until they returned, they were under diplomatic immunity. They were not uh, U.S. Department of State employees, Mm -hmm. but they were under the umbrella. And the Kremlin had wanted to get that changed for some time. There were a lot of rumors about why that was happening. Mm -hmm. One of the rumors being that they really wanted the building, they wanted to close the school, Mm -hmm. which they have done. 
since. So that was kind of part of the scene there. So my sister-in-law was there and she, he actually, they left him his phone Mm. while they were holding him at the airport and he was texting me. And then my sister-in-law was texting me. And so I found out really shortly after he was detained. Then my sister-in-law was the person who was reporting. And it was one crazy thing after the next. Sure. What do you do first when you get hit with some news like that? What's the first thing that you do? I called a lawyer. Mm. Called a lawyer here, and the school had hired a lawyer in Moscow. Okay. But in Russia, Russia is known for the fixers. And um, my sister-in-law, in complete and utter shock, went all in for the fix. And it turned out that the fixer was actually the person who tipped the airport security off to Mark coming through. And he was a former employee of the school. He was the IT guy at the school and was, you know, probably the person located there to dig dirt. That's awful. So it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty yucky. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, that is yucky. Do you ever get to speak to Mark? How is he? Yes, I do. We speak pretty frequently through the embassy. So he's able to call the embassy and the embassy patches us through. Okay. It's a zero privacy connection. So you kind of have to stick with the pleasantries and um, general family business. Sure. That sort of thing. And, and he does not respond to how are yeah. you? And it's uh, it's one of those questions that it's it's so natural to say, how sure. are you? Because you want to know. Yes. And he it's usually a pause. And uh, sometimes he'll go as far as to say it's it's going. Mm. It's it's not. Uh, he doesn't like to answer. It. Sure. I mean, so. considering. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Is there any type of strategy? Uh, whether from the State Department or from the family, to bring Mark home? The White House and the State Department say that they are working toward his release. Because he does not have a wrongful detention status, we are really left out of that picture. And utterly, you know, they, they just will not disclose anything. Mm. How do you get someone to be declared unlawfully detained? Well, there is a, there's a, something called the Levinson Act, Mm. which lists 11 qualifying statutes Mm. of which Mark hits about six to seven of them. Okay. And they are, some of them don't apply to him at all. In my mind, he completely qualifies as he is being held there politically. Sure. I mean, there's just no, there's no question about it. They're not sentencing their own people to a 14-year sentence right. for 14 grams of marijuana. Right. It's just not. Um, and they've been, you know, I think that they were gathering fodder before in preparation for the war, perhaps. Mm. Yeah. Is my guess. Has this changed your perspective of the U.S. government? being that they've uh, yes you know yeah it really has and i am a socially liberal person mm. but it really has um it's it's funny to be living a life where there is you know the shadow in the this like it's very easy to entertain conspiracy <laughs> theories <laughs> i'm really 
I'm, I'm really not that kind of person <laughs> typically, yeah. but it's been a very, it's been a strange few years yeah. of what is, you know, of, and part of that is being, you know, because we are very much kept in the dark. Mm. It's not hard to go down those rabbit holes. So, yeah. Do you have any communication with the Russian government? No. No. And I don't, uh, no, and we're not allowed to speak with them. Mm. I don't, our lawyer, our, also our lawyers are not allowed to speak with them. Mm. And is there a lawyer, I guess the lawyer that the school hired, are they part of a team in Russia on the ground that's working for the release? Well, Mark has been through several lawyers in Russia, mm. and now the lawyer, now the team that's working with him in Russia is working with our people in the United States, okay. our legal team in the United States as well. Yeah. So it's um, th- there. There's goodwill on both sides for him. Yeah. The entire entire legal team is pro bono, which is wow. phenomenal, phenomenal. So we're thankful for that. Yeah. And. I have to think that because the legal team in Russia is also pro bono, that they have a sense of the true meaning behind these things. Sure. Yeah. So. I can't, you know, thank you enough for taking some time to, you know, to speak with us about Mark and, and this incredible situation. What can our listeners do to support Mark and your, and your family? You can write to uh, Secretary Blinken. Yeah. That is the person that has to make the decision to put Mark first. Mm. It's such an unusual situation because we have Paul Whalen, who has been there for over five years now, who seems, uh, I've been told that the Russians genuinely believe that he's a spy. Mm. And I understand the U.S. government's position of like believing that he needs to get out first, but Mark is there for... Mark was there for taking the medication that he's prescribed. Right. Yeah. It's not for espionage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And is there anything else that you would like to to add? And God bless you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I want to have faith in the government that we elected. Yeah. And um, I would ask people to write to Secretary Blinken. Yeah. And... Um, let him know that uh, Marcus, a person of concern. Perfect. I love it. And he's affected a lot of lives in an extremely positive way. He is a net plus. Yeah. Plus kind of person. Yeah. We need to bring Mark home. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's a force of good. Yeah. Perfect. And once again, thank you so much. You are incredible. Thank you so much. Yeah. Really, really enjoyed it. And yeah, definitely listeners, please uh, write Secretary Blinken. Let's bring Mark home. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for having me. Thank you all so much for listening and sharing this episode with your networks. As Anne mentioned, writing to Secretary of State Blinken would be really impactful. We'll include those details in the show description. A special shout out to the team who took the lead on the show, Rainier for research and writing, Madison for production, and Brendan, Derek, and DeVale for their sound wizardry. Thank you guys so much. This is Chaylin, and I'll catch you guys next week.